Welcome, Dr. James Beckett, Sports Card Insights. Here with Skeppy, we're going to talk about Card Ladder. I've spent a little bit of time with those guys over Zoom. I've been in person with them a bit too, and very sharp. But Skeppy and I talked about just some aspects of that. So, uh, thanks, sponsors: Topps Panini, Upper Deck Heritage Auctions, Sucker to Scott Auctions, Mike Stadium Sports Cards, Burbank Sports Cards, Compc.com, and Beckett Media, Beckett Grading, Beckett Authentication. So. Skeppy's a sharp guy, very tuned into what's going on in the hobby, really cares about the future. We both believe that, that Card Ladder is doing a lot of things right, and uh, it's enjoyable. You talked about box bottom cards. Some people don't even know what that is because there have been periods where that was done and then periods where it wasn't. And uh, box bottom had four cards. The most popular ones have been four cards. You have to hand cut them. I guess you could take them to a professional, but there's ways to cut those box bottom cards. And some of them are, are really nice. And you know at a glance, they're not the regular card. They're lettered instead of numbered. They've got a different photo. So are you a big fan of those? Most people, Skeppy, just quietly go about buying them up (laughs) because they're way tougher than the cards that came in the packs. Yeah, that's the story that goes behind them because these cards are on the bottom of the box. They were the cards that, that were brushed across the shelves and creased up on the bottom and got all beat up. You typically can't find them in very good grade, but you bring up the other point is that it's difficult to cut them apart properly to get them graded correctly, but there's value to it because a lot of those cards, especially in the tops box bottoms, they had the back of the card. You had some information and some stats and some very cool stuff. So it wasn't just like this card where there's nothing on the back or added value to it. The combination of how hard they are to find in nice condition, plus the variant of what it was from the original set, like in tops you would get a different picture of that player and it was a different color of the card too. So like an 87 tops football, instead of a white card of Jerry Rice, for example, it would be a yellow card and a totally different picture and different content. So I think there's a lot of added value that that goes with those aside from how difficult they are to extract and finding good condition. Okay. So you've got a box bottom and it's got the Jerry Rice. It's four cards. Usually one player is better than the other. Is your strategy to cut exactly on the black line into the four cards Or do you say, I'm going to oversize slightly to make sure I've got a full black border for the Jerry Rice and not worry about trimming of the other three? Send it in for grading, maybe. That's a tough one, because if you're going to grade it, it has to hit a very specific uh, diameter. And you you can't do it if you cut them. If you cut all four, you're liable to lose all four to not be able to get graded because they just don't measure. That's correct. If you're looking at a box bottom of four cards and you've got two players on there that you would like to have, you may have to choose which one you're going to end up with, but it's going to come down to how well the card is cut and how it's going to meet specs. And I've seen many cards that two of the edges, like the top edge and the right edge, have a little bit of the white border or a little bit of the black border, but it's necessary to have that so that it meets a spec and can be graded properly. So there's a lot of intricate things in there that people don't really understand with those cards. And that that's the mystique and the thing that I get excited about and understand the differences that are involved. So you would not cut them democratically. You would strategically cut to make sure, which I think is the financially prudent, it seems unsporting as a collector that you're going to damage two cards to keep the other two in better condition, but it, it probably makes sense. Okay, next question. You'd ask me about 1932 American Caramels. I assume you're talking about the baseball set, not the president set. I like both. <laughs> the baseball set is the one that I was referring to, but okay. the president set has some really cool features to it too. I love the baseball set, predominantly baseball. It's an amazing set. It's so simple yet so elegant that I think it's often overlooked, and I don't think people understand how rare they are. Okay, so another hypothetics where there's no correct answer. 10 times tougher than Gaudi's, their contemporary more popular set, or 100 times more rare. Wow, that's tough. Um, 100 Gaudi, 
for every American caramel or 10. If you look at the pop reports of what has been seen from a grading standpoint, it's probably around that 10% mark. I'd say for every one caramel, you'd find easily 10 of the Gaudis. But if we just focus on the Babe Ruth, there's four Babe Ruths in the Gaudi set, right? four different colors. Right. And if you add up all the graded ones, there's, I don't know, it's somewhere around five, 6,000 of them that have been seen to give you, and I'm just focusing on PSA here, but then you look at US Caramel and I think only about 185 Babe Ruths have been seen. Batting that up, I think the US Caramel is incredibly more rare. It's probably 10 or 20 times more common to find a Gaudi than a US Caramel. I think they're way tougher. It's way more than 10X, but the value is not 10X, I don't think. I think you're right. I think one to a hundred. I don't know if I'd say it's it was a trick question. I think it's in between those two numbers and the values don't represent that because it's too scarce and there aren't as many people trying to complete that set as it would be with the Gaudis. So the Gaudis are available enough that people can chase it. The other thing that's interesting is that the stated measurements that you see online are a little bit different than what they actually measure at. They're the same size as 1948 leaf. I don't know if people really understand that some of the stated sizes of those cards that you see online, they are calling out a different size and people are misinformed on that. Any thoughts on that? They're not two and a half by three. There's some information you can find that has them measuring differently. Really? Yeah. I think PSA, BGS, SGC, all those know what's the sizing, but I've had a lot of trimmed Gaudis. I've had very few trimmed caramel cards over the year. They're just tougher. Another sports card insight is that sometimes when things are that tough, you would think more of them would get graded, but not necessarily. Because a lot of still in the hands of some advanced, older, baby boomer, this generation kind of collector who haven't gotten them graded because they're legitimately tough in their own way. There's counterfeits and reprints of it, but they're horrible. They're, no, they're no, very but easy the, to... I don't know that they're counterfeits. Those are reprints. I think. Reprints, yes. I make a distinction there. At any rate, it's a gorgeous set. And uh, so are you trying to complete? The, where are you on that? In the past, I had a couple of the Babe Ruth. Jimmy Fox was one out of there that I really enjoy. There's only 32 cards in the set. So it's it, pick the player that you want. I think every one of them have some characteristics people overlook. And I think they're amazing cards. From what I understand, they were a regional release, right? Like up in the Northeast, I think. One of the buying trips I did in Boston, we got a bunch of those. And I got the Ruth and the Gehrig. And they're at the bank, but they're beautiful cards. And I think when I get to selling things, that'll be in the last wave because they're sentimental favorites. Uh, other than the fact that my dad had some Gaudis that I also have true sentimental favorite, but if I sold them, I'd never replace it. The other characteristic that I find interesting in those is that it captures the player off guard a little bit. They're not in a serious pose. They're not playing pose. Hey, Ruth, his hat is on a little bit crooked. And it's like the more natural shots of these players, which is kind of cool. Good point. Okay. We're talking about some of the current pricing tools that are out there and card ladder would be a good example. They are a little more basketball centric and a little more current. What was your point on that? The baseball with such its rich history was lagging behind or because, you know, up until five years ago, baseball was the thing. And now after COVID, basketball is serious stuff. Yeah, Card Ladder, I think uh, they have a great product. They have a, a great team behind it that really cares. They know their stuff and they're putting a lot of effort into this. But uh, their passions is where this started. They built it up on basketball and there was some other, other sports that are grouped in it, but they're constantly growing it. They sense that and they know that it needs to grow, but they're also following what the hobby is looking for too. I understand basketball is the big one and, and uh, people want content on that, but I, they also see the vision that there's a lot of other great cards out there that people want to get that same type of pricing data for. And it's not just card ladder. I think that a lot of the other price tools out there are very basketball focused and 
follow the herd type focused. I think there's so much that's being missed and it could probably grow quite a bit more if they added some of those cards in there that people are looking for. Of course, you're right. But here's what their answer is going to be, I think, because I've talked to them about this and grasping with the situation I was in 43 years ago. I had a chance to do data analytics on cards. And I chose to spread myself probably impossibly thin, but to do all the cards in all the sets that were the mainstream sets. But there was a lot less market information in the day, but we could get our hands on it. And I was known to all the dealers and all that stuff. So all I had to make a decision was these are the sets that most people are interested in. And there was a pretty strong consensus about that 43 years ago. Fast forward now, what Chris and Josh say and Christina is that they have let the public decide what cards will be added to card ladder. But the problem with that is that some of these people that are telling them what to add are just like them. They're fans. And John and Chris and Christina all have well-known PCs and favorite players, mainly basketball. And so a lot of their fan club, and I think they do a great job, is basketball oriented. So it's not a random sample. On mm-hmm. the other hand, like you said, baseball used to be more than half the industry way more than half the industry. If you go back, I think this will write itself as we keep moving because they have a desire to keep adding cards. But I went the other direction because I was trying to be more exhaustive and they're trying to appeal to their techniques are cost prohibitive to do every card. So they have that dilemma, but it didn't seem to bother the collector's universe <laughs> that they're only doing so many thousand cards Actually, it's not even that many cards. They can say it's cards slash condition, but I applaud what they're doing. I don't want to be criticizing people that have a dream and then make it come true. Hopefully this transaction, they are probably salivating at the increased resources they have with a larger parent. And the larger parent, it does have additional resources, but they want to spend the resources as they see fit. So I don't think Josh and Chris and Christina are going to get a blank check. They're going to be subject to the larger entity And the only thing I would push back on what you said, because I was part of a transaction too, and you've probably seen corporate transactions. There is such a thing as a honeymoon period and they're in the honeymoon period. And uh, there's also a seven-year itch, (laughs) but I think they have a sympathetic owner, energy partner. I think they're sharp guys. And I hope that the parent will give them plenty of room to exploit an opportunity to bring some additional data analytic tools to our industry. If they don't, that's the problem. When you get in a conflict and somebody is the boss, now, I was in the boss chair in my company, but your sharp people, when they get a good idea, if you tell them, no, we're not going to do that, they can go somewhere else. Now, maybe they can't go somewhere else for a while, but they may be non-competed, but there's a symbiosis there. I think Collector's Universe wants them. I don't know that I would say they need them, but they're pleased and they're still in the honeymoon period. And Josh and Chris and Christine are saying how great it is. I hope it's always that way. In many cases, though, it sours <laughs> at some point when you'll make your numbers. Yeah. And <clears throat> honestly, that team, I really enjoy. I love their content. Really, every Friday night, I get a ton of enjoyment just listening to those guys. So, you know, the other thing we have to think about is that they're maybe some pioneers of today for price guides. They took some ideas of the past and have incorporated that into what, what they've accomplished today. There's a lot of challenges that they're facing that we don't know about because we're not the ones doing it. So we have to take that into consideration. Sometimes you can give too much data. Like you put a lot of extra work and extra time into providing this data, and then you end up scaling it back because there's too much there. I remember the Beckett price guides, they were very all-inclusive. Like you had every card in the set and every price, 
and it shrunk down to where it was like a third of the set and it shrunk down to where it was like the set and like four player. There is a point where I think that too much data can be a bad thing. At the end of the day, I think they all provide a ton of value and then each character in that team has their own set of ways that they collect and view the hobby. It's uh, very enjoyable to watch and enjoy their content. They're really smart. They've got skills. They really care about the hobby, not just the industry, but they care about the hobby and they have a sense of humor. Okay. That's a cool combination. And I think Nat, Nat Turner's cut out of that same cloth. So if I were still running my old company, I would love to be in business where my competitor is Nat Turner because I'd have to up my game because he cares, he's smart, and actually he's got deeper pockets than I do too. So that's nice too. But it doesn't mean he wants to throw money around for no reason. So yeah. What's the best for him? I, they're one of the very few content creators that I choose to listen to. And I'm pretty selective. I don't just listen to all of them. I pick the ones that I feel like I get value out of. And that group is definitely one of them. One of your comments to me was about whether they would be dispensable or indispensable. To me, it's not a dichotomy. I had employees that if I looked at it one way, I'd think, gee, they're they're almost indispensable. They can leave. And so they better not be indispensable. But the employee's job and the employer's job, same thing, is to make, make that employee as valuable as possible. But if they become indispensable, that's a problem. But Josh would be really difficult to replace if he just said, hey, I'm, I want to go take a year vacation or somebody gets sick. So the responsible boss or the parent company has to say, we've got to have coverage. We've got to have bench strength so that people can take vacation. So the pressure is not on just this unique person. And same thing with Chris and Christine. Same thing with guys we had on our team who were extremely valuable. And so to me, there's a big difference between extremely valuable and indispensable, maybe not even healthy. Some of those things where they come to root from those is concern. Like I just want the best for them and I want them to succeed. Now they're in big business and it it makes you wonder how all that's going to go down. I just want them to to keep doing what they're doing and I look forward to seeing how they grow with it. The metric I'm looking at, which isn't really a metric, but they still have their sense of humor. They're still joking the tone and tenor of their weekly show where they're just having a hoot. So when the humor stops, I'm going to be in your camp of being concerned about it. But it's pretty easy to be bullish on most of the hobby at this point. That's a good way to put a barometer on it. When people are happy in their work, they do better work. If they're nervous about their future or they're frustrated that they're not getting the support or they don't have the computing power or the admin assistance, there's any number of ways that a really sharp creator can be derailed. I'm not seeing that. I hope it doesn't happen. Like I said, I tried to protect that from not happening when I was in charge, but people can burn out.